How's the sound, everybody? Online? Good? Beautiful. Yeah, so announcements, uh, basically, we have a retreat coming up on the, um, well, the one that's open for everyone will be Saturday, May the 1st, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. We'll be putting out a link for probably Zoom, um, and it should go out in the newsletter, and we'll also post it on the website once we get it. We just haven't gotten the link established yet. Um, as part of our <clears throat> Order of Pragmatic Buddhist um, Spring Retreat, and on that Saturday, uh, let's see, Kelly and Alan aren't here yet, but Kelly, Alan, and John will all be taking novice ordination, and our friend Beverly from Scotland will be taking her deshi, or teacher, ordination. Um, so that will be at the end of that day. So at 3 o'clock, we'll do the ordinations. <clears throat> the rest of the day will be um, alternates between meditation and uh, short dharma talks and discussions. So everyone is welcome for that. There is no charge for it. Um, we just want to open it up. It will be open to everyone overall. Um, if you were at the fall retreat, you may remember that we had a lot of people from Scotland. Uh, we had about 20 people from our Scotland sangha. So it's a good time to meet people from the other groups. Uh, we are still doing... Are we, are we still doing... What's today? Nope, this was... Today is the last day of the garden prep at Sacred Table Community Garden. Um, we'll probably be having some more sessions established in May to actually do the planting once we get past frost. Um, so be on the, on the lookout on the website for that under the events page. 
and I, oh, um, sorry, offering refuge and precepts. We'll be doing that at the end of May, the last Sunday of May, uh, which will be the Sunday closest to Vesak. Um, if you're interested in taking refuge, which is the way you declare yourself following the Buddha way, um, that's entirely up to you. There are no classes or anything else for taking refuge. You just let me know that you are wanting to take refuge. Um, and then if you're wanting to take the precepts, we will be having classes in May, and I'll announce those in the upcoming newsletters. Thanks. Do we have any, any outreach stuff that's coming up or anything like that? I can't remember. Uh, not yet. Be on the lookout for some community building things going on this summer and fall. Uh, as we get more in person, we've got a lot of ideas that the outreach committee has come up with. So there are a number of things we're, we're looking forward to doing. Um, just to give you a taste, some of the ideas are uh, what I'm calling meditation. Um, it's mindfulness meditation while sipping your tea. Um, so hoping to work out something in cooperation with a Third Way Cafe down the street to do, open that up to everybody in the community. Uh, we're also thinking about a Raku workshop where you learn how to make Raku pottery and then we'll fire it together um, at the kiln that I use. Um, potentially a calligraphy workshop where you learn how to do Japanese, Chinese calligraphy. Um, all sorts of things like that you know, on top of the book, book clubs ongoing. And I'll, I'll throw my 15-second uh, oh, yeah. in for the RD meeting, um, recovery Dharma meeting for those who want to avail themselves of a recovery, a Buddhist-based recovery program. We meet on Thursdays at noon. I'll drop the link into the chat window. And it's curi curiously like practice on Sundays. We read a bit, we meditate a bit, <laughs> and then we open it up for discussion. So, um, But I'll drop that link in there if you or anyone you know wants to avail themselves of that service. Thank you. Actually, uh, thanks for reminding me, John. We also have gotten a volunteer to be our in-person facilitator here. Um, he's taking a break from school and traveling for the month of uh, May and June, but we're hoping to start back in-person recovery meetings in July. Um, sorry, I'm sorry, take a breath. Um, I'm more than happy to ring. Does anybody want to ring? I can do it. Nice. Um, I just wanted to say I dropped the uh, the Discord. I'm going to drop the Discord link in the uh, in the chat for anybody who hasn't joined. Uh, we have a Discord that's like an online community thing that can join you on. Ben was saying that there's a bunch of discussion, so please join.
Sounds like a good time. I'm too old. <laughs> if I'm on it, you're not too old. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, if I'm using it for online gaming, you're not too old. (laughs) I'd like to be too old. You'd like to be. That's hilarious. All right, let's get started. Body, space, and mind in perfect harmony. I said my heart will along with the sound of the spell. May all who listen to it be called to mindfulness and transcend anxiety and sorrow.
required by our practice to extend to all living beings. Wow. We live in the universe connected to all beings. There are those who are in need of physical healing. May they receive care and medicines for their healing. There are those who are in need of mental and emotional healing. May they receive care and medicines for their healing. Among this community, we have the following intentions. thoughts in our minds throughout the coming week. We are aware that our interconnection can extend through space and time and we send our desire for protection to all. Like the Bodhisattva of compassion, we hear and respond to those in need. Okay, for the Heart Sutra. Turn your program to... <laughs> we'll do alternate number one on page seven. Great Kanzayan Bodhisattva knew that all of personality was receptivity. Form is only openness. Openness only form. The same is also true of all sensations, thought, activity, and even consciousness itself. All reality we know is receptivity. Never beginning or wholly ending. Never staying or pure, increasing or shrinking. Receptive only are form, sensation, thought, and action, and even consciousness itself. Receptive are eye, and ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Receptive are color and sound, smell, taste, touch, and thought. Ignorance and knowledge, aging, death, and their negotiation. All of these are waiting to be filled. Empty of meaning is suffering, desire, blowing out, and noble eightfold path. Every Bodhisattva lives in this rhythm, and living sees they are nirvana now. Buddha's past and present and the future all rely on this great wisdom. Know this wisdom is the highest mantra, the mantra which relieves all suffering, the mantra which builds the world anew. So, tell, tell the great wisdom, going, 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 going on, on beyond, always becoming, wisdom, so may it be. In this moment we are renewed. May we realize our unity with the universe and be at peace. In this moment we are renewed. May we realize our unity with the universe and are at peace. Swaham. Give me just a second to switch out some things. <laughs> I will say, Bob, that it has uh, been a long time since I've uh, looked across and <laughs> you've been right there. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, at the old center, Bob and I usually sat across from each other and we made him incredibly uncomfortable, so we switched to one side <laughs> or the other. <laughs> <laughs> Not so today, dead center. <laughs> We got bulletproof glass between the two. It's <laughs> practically like the Pope Mobile. <laughs> I am no Pope, and this mobile isn't going anywhere. <laughs> oh, right. So for today, um, I have a parable. 
And so I've split it into two parts, the three subsections. <laughs> so, uh, if you will look at your syllabus. Uh -huh. well, I said, if you will look at your syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> look at your syllabus. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the parable in its not quite entirety. And then we'll start breaking it down for a bit. And I'll keep track of time as best I can. And then we, I will read what the Buddha had to say. And then we'll talk about that. Sound good, everybody? Is that good? I know I'm prettier with a mask on, but now that I'm going to be talking. Um, so this is called the Parable of the Mustard Seed. Uh, not to be confused with our uh, Christian counterparts version. This is um, out of the Theragatha Athakatha, which translates as the commentaries on the Theragatha, uh, which is the Theragatha is the verses of the elder nuns. Um, it, it, is, it itself is in the Sutta Pitaka in the Kudak Nikaya. There, perfect, clear as mud. Um, Your Pali lesson for today. Yes. Uh, and so this concerns a um, person called Kisa Gatsumi. Um, and so a little bit of background on Kisa. Am I saying that right? Kisa? Kisa? Kisa, Kisa sounds weird. Kisa. We're going to go Kisa. Um, she was born um, from a poor household, uh, married somebody from a wealthy household, um, and she was derided for being too thin and not being able to give her husband children. Um, so she had a child, um, and this child was just the light of her life. It was a son, all's well. And so things go a bit sideways, and when the child was about one, child died. Tragic accident, it's not really said what happens, but that's where we're picking up here. So, Kiss's only child, a very young son, had died. Unwilling to accept his death, she carried him from neighbor to neighbor and begged for someone to give her medicine to bring him back to life. One of her neighbors told her to go to the Buddha, located nearby, and ask him if he maybe had a way to bring her son back to life. Bringing the body of her son, Kissa found the Buddha and pleaded with him to help bring her son back to life. He instructed her to go back to her village and gather mustard seeds from the households of those who had never been touched by death. From those mustard seeds, he promised he would create a medicine to bring her son back to life. Relieved, she went back to her village and began asking her neighbors for mustard seeds. All of her neighbors were willing to give her mustard seeds, but they all told her that their households had been touched by death. They told her that the living are few, but the dead are many. As the day became evening and night, she was still without any of the mustard seeds that she had been instructed to collect. According to the Buddhist, verse, Buddhist version of the story, she says, it's not just a truth from one village or town, nor is it a truth for a single family. But for every world settled by gods and men, this indeed is what is true, impermanence. With this new understanding, her grief was calmed. She buried her son in the forest and then returned to the Buddha. She confessed to the Buddha that she could not obtain any of the mustard seeds he instructed her to collect because she could not find even one house untouched by death. And that's where we're going to stop for that portion of it. Okay? So let's go back to the beginning. 
and we're going to break it into parts. Well, I'm going to break it into parts. So you guys are going to hear me. Um, so I'll read this first part of it. So Kiss's only child, a very young son, had died. Unwilling to accept his death, she carried him from neighbor to neighbor and begged for someone to give her medicine to bring him back to life. One of her neighbors told her to go to the Buddha located nearby and asked him if maybe he had a way to bring her son back to life. So what's going on in this portion of it? Overwhelming grief, suffering, Denial. failure to understand. For sure, right? She's got this one-year-old, just made her life, like this is what her family expected of her, her husband expected of her. She's, you know, finally got it. And he's running around and then, boom, out of nowhere, split second, dead. I think grief is probably the appropriate response, right? But what else is happening? Well, I think uh, denial is it? Yeah. I mean, imagine this woman. She's got her son, one-year-old son in her hands, walking around from house to house. The child is clearly dead. But she's running around in her community. It doesn't even seem like she's gotten to the grief part yet until the next part of the story. Just the, the first stage of that denial is just it's crazy what people do when they can't accept something. I've had many similar experiences in my life. No, and, and something has happened that cannot be reversed, but she's looking for a miracle at this point, right? She just wants something to change from her situation. How about my internet friends? Anybody have anything they want to add? Yeah, it, appear, it appears that she's just completely consumed in her own specific situation. She's lost perspective, right? She just wants whatever's happening, didn't, doesn't seem fair, doesn't want it to happen, wants to go back to the way it was. See, it seems there's a level of like desperation in her act of going door to door. No, and, I, and, this, is, and this is a common thing, right? Like, I work in the hospital as a chaplain. I see this all the time. Like, just an unwilling to accept reality, right? And petitioning to whoever will listen, whatever God will listen, whatever, to the point where one of her neighbors is like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, I don't have anything to give you, but, but maybe, you know what, there's this guy, maybe, maybe he can do something, right? And so, for me, I'm listening to this and I'm like, everybody in her village is real uncomfortable with this. And they're like, hey, send her somewhere else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because the Buddha's not there. He's located nearby, so it's not like you're asking her to go far. But you're like, we can't deal with this either. You know what I mean? We can't help you get, I don't want to say get out. That's probably a, a mean way of saying it, but it's probably a hard thing for them to bear witness to as well, right? In my notes I have, you know, what do you guys think that the Buddha has to offer, right? Um, you guys are all Buddhists, this is probably an easier question. But what do you, I mean, we, 
We have the pair. Well, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. <laughs> that's that's in section two. All right, subpart B. All right, so moving on, bringing the body of her son with her, Tissa found Buddha, the Buddha and pleaded with him to help bring her son back. He instructed her to go to her village and gather mustard seeds from the households of those who have never been touched by death. From those mustard seeds, he promised he would create a medicine to bring her son back to life. Relieved, she went back to her village and began asking her neighbors for mustard seeds. All of her neighbors were willing to give her mustard seeds, but they all told her that their households had been touched by death. They told her the living are few, but the dead are many. So what's going on now? Death is pervasive. Life always results in death. Be accepting of it. We all have to deal with it. Sure. I mean, yes, that, that clearly is... But there are other things going on as well, right? In this, the Buddha is trying to communicate... Oh, I don't want to touch the mic. That probably sounded like... <laughs> but the, the Buddha is trying to communicate that, look, death is a part of life, Right? But he's doing it in an interesting way, right? Why mustard seeds? Because they're very common. Very common. Like it's like, it's like uh, maybe us as Americans being like, "Hey, I can make you salt." Yeah, I can make you a potion out of salt. Just go get me some salt. And, um, but also, because it's so common, I mean, he he's sending her back to her community, right? He's saying, "Hey." Go take your grief back to your community. And what do they say? They say, no, we've been touched by death too. And so in this, I imagine they're telling her their story as well. Like, I can't give it to you. My brother died in this tragic accident. You know what I mean? Or, you know, we just lost grandma. Or, And so in this process, not only is she learning that death is pervasive, right? Nobody gets out of here alive. But she's also learning that not only is she's not the first one to deal with grief, and that these other people all have gone through it, and I won't say that they're good with it, but they they were able to process their grief. They were able to move on. They were able to get to a point where they were able to accept what had happened, right? And so she's in some in some of the I read different versions. Uh, in one of the versions, like. This is her learning compassion, that by hearing these other stories, she feels sorry for them, and that sparks something in her, right? But it seems uncompassionate for them not to give her a mustard seed so that she is able to share in their knowledge and move on in her grieving process, doesn't it? To us now, yeah, but we have to remember that this was a a time of belief in magic and different thinking. Understood. Right, and Thank so you. a mustard seed from someone who had been touched by death wouldn't work in the spell. It wouldn't have the power. Right. Understood. Thank you. So they wouldn't even consider doing that. My it's funny because my impression, my first impression, is why well, Buddha was kind of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there. Um, I that too. Yeah, I can make a potion, sure. What I was thinking was he kind of sent her on his fool's errand on purpose 
to have her learn this lesson of come, like you're not special. Just accept what is going on. Nobody is. It, it is. It's. You're not unique in your suffering. We all have it. And if you want to stay in that place, you're going to be stuck. So you might need a kick in the pants a little bit or some kind of awakening to kind of change your perspective and get to the next stage of grief or keep going through that or whatever's happened, whatever's going on with you at that point in time. I think it also communicates the um, concept of She's also learning uh, that core Buddhist concept. Yeah, I mean, this absolutely that all of us are intertwined because in a village like this, I mean, it's, I can't really tell you, like, I don't really know how big the village was or if it was like more of a city or, um, but, you know, you're going to hear stories about somebody's brother. Well, that's somebody's wife. Or you're going to hear some, you know, that's somebody's dog. You know what I mean? Like, and so she's, as she's going around, almost collecting these stories of death and grief, she's learning about like, the familial ties of her village, you know? Yeah, she's being reincorporated into her community, and she's not alone. She's learning that she's not alone person. Absolutely. And, and I want to circle back around. Um, all of her neighbors were willing to give her mustard seeds. Like, and I almost picture them like, you can have them all. I just, I can't can't tell you that there's no grief. Um, but I also think that speaks to us almost as a lesson. Was function. that the question that was being asked? There is no grief. Uh, I cannot no. tell you there is no grief. But, but sorry, I'm maybe equivocating where I shouldn't be. Okay. Where there's no death. You know what I mean? They're like, hey, I can, I can give you all of these seeds, but I can't. There I can't. is, okay. I'm not going to give you the seed because there is no potion that will cure death. No, that the point, point you're making. No, no I, I can't give you the seeds because my family has been touched by death. Okay, and you require a seed from a family who has not been touched by death. Okay, that makes better sense to me. Thank you. But I mean, I, um, but like I said, I think that speaks to us sort of because I know that when somebody is, and I had to learn to get better at this, that when somebody is just lost somebody or is grieving or this. It's like, what can I do? I want to do this. Just give me something to do and I will do it. And sometimes the best thing you can do is not do that. You know, like, I, I want to give you these things, but I can't give you what you actually need. So as Glenn has said to me before, simply let it be. Yeah? I mean, I don't think it gets more Buddhist than that. But yeah, yeah, let, let, let it be. Um... Or something else I wanted to say. I thought about it and I lost it. Um, any, any from our uh, internet friends? I, I noted how excited she was when the Buddha first told her, yeah, all you have to do is find a mustard seed. And she realized that's so common. This will be easy. That's the impression I got. 
And then first house. But it wasn't. No, second house, <laughs> no, third house, no. And she started kind of interweaving her myopic vision of this has happened to me, I just have to reverse this, and then all will be well, to, oh my goodness, this other thing is just as common as the mustard seed. And she starts getting more perspective of the first time she's had this very deep and traumatic experience because she realizes so many other people have had this. And it's kind of this interweaving of these two very common things. Yeah, and from, from a grief standpoint, what's the Buddha giving her? He's giving her time and perspective, which are the, in my, in my estimation, the thing most people need in order to process death is time and perspective. All right, moving on. I think I went down too far. I might have broken this down into four parts. All right, well, we're all nailing this pretty good, but I want to make sure we get to the next part. So, so now let's look at part two. What did the Buddha? What did the Buddha say when she came back to him? And was like, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't find anybody to get a mustard seed from, like, I buried my son, I get it, you know what I mean? Um, he says, one of these days I'll have a real laptop, you watch. <laughs> Dear girl, the life of mortals in this world is troubled and brief and inseparable from suffering. For there is not any means, nor will there ever be, by which those that have been born can avoid dying. All living beings are of such a nature that they must die whether they reach old age or not. Cool, so far so good. As early ripening fruits are in danger of falling, so mortals when born are also in danger of dying. Just as the earthen vessels made by the potter end in shards, so is the life of mortals. Both young and old, both those who are foolish and those who are wise, all fall into the power of death. All are subject to death. Of those who depart from this life, overcome by death, a father cannot save his son, nor relatives their kinsfolk. While relatives are looking on and lamenting, one by one mortals are carried off like oxen to the slaughter. People die, and their fate after death will be according to their deeds. Such are the terms of this world. Not from weeping nor from grieving will anyone obtain a peace of mind. On the contrary, his pain will be all the greater, and he will ruin his health. He will make himself sick and pale, but dead bodies cannot be restored by his lamentations. Now that you have heard... The Tathagata, the Buddha, reject grief. Do not allow it to enter your mind. Seeing one dead, know for sure. I shall never see him again in this existence. And just as this fire of a burning house is quenched, so does the contemplative, wise person scatter grief's power expertly, swiftly, even as the wind scatters cottonseed. He who seeks peace should pull out the arrow of lamentations, useless longings, and the self-made pangs of grief. He who has removed this unwholesome arrow and has calmed himself will obtain peace of mind. 
Verily, he who has conquered grief will always be free from grief, sane and immune, confident, happy, and close to Nevada, so I say. What'd you guys hear? Sounds easier said than done. Just reject grief, reject lamentation. That's not how it works. Yeah, it also sounded like at odds with like the story I know that Glenn has told before about like uh, the uh, Buddhist teacher who like lost yeah. his son or whatever, and then his students come to see how he's doing, and they just imagine he's going to be perfectly poised because he's a you know a Buddhist teacher or whatever, and he's like wailing, and he's like, well, if I were to grieve now, when would I grieve? You know, and I always, you know, thought that was astute point and now this seems to be at like the opposite end it's like no 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 actually it's not appropriate to grieve at all that's something's wrong with you if you're grieving <laughs> that's not normal or healthy but i thought that i don't know what's up buddha i don't think that's right <laughs> <laughs> right i think the literal wording or at least the translation is a little bit off i think what at least this is my interpretation, is that you shouldn't hold on to those emotions of like the grief, the lamentation, all that. You shouldn't hold on to it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't experience it. it. doesn't mean that that's not normal, but you shouldn't just cling to it. You shouldn't hold on to it. You shouldn't just carry it with you for the rest of your life, like always regretting that, oh, my child died, you know, some infant, some infant death syndrome. It's a thing. Um, especially in developing countries. Um, like, you, you shouldn't hold on to that. It's not useful to hold on to it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't experience it. It's going to happen that you do experience it, but it's not useful to hold on to it. Use it for growth rather than destructive purpose. You could also do that, yeah. yes. I, I agree with you. That's what I want to hear, too. <laughs> But I don't think that's in here, right? You know what I mean? Like, it sounds to me like, because I read the first part, and I've read the, the first part of the tale dozens of times, right? It's a very common parable in Buddhism. Uh, and, and this is only in two commentaries that I saw, this last part, the second part. It's, it's in it. And I, I guess I bring it up because it sounds to me in this that he's saying, you make your own grief. You don't have to. Stop it. Right? Like, that's what it sounds like he's saying. He's like, oh, and by the way, the last part of this is, having heard this, just as stepped on the uh, path of enlightenment and became the first female arhat. So this, for whatever reason, this section of it, there's something there. Like, there, whenever, whenever you hear that at the end of something, that means that whatever came before Real important, right? Like, it was like, oh, well, that led to Nirvana. It's like, okay. So, but I'm with you guys. I wanted to say, you know, don't make it worse. Don't cling to your grief, that kind of thing. But in this, it sounds like now that you've heard the Buddha Tissa, reject grief, do not allow it to enter your mind. Seeing one dead, know for sure, 
I shall never see him again in this existence. And just as the fire of a burning house is quenched, so does the contemplative wise person scatter grief's power expertly, swiftly, even as the winds scatters cotton seed. It doesn't sound like there's much room in there for don't rip or don't do this, don't experience this. He's saying, as soon as it happens, peace out. Like, never see you again, moving on. Oof. <laughs> you know, um, that actually kind of tracks with my understanding of, of a lot of uh, Buddhist teachings sort of from some of the texts. Like, uh, I remember in the Dhammapada there was a section that I spent a lot of time pondering about where he straight up says, like, don't love. Like, don't love anything, ever. Uh, which I was struck, I, like, I wanted to think of it in terms of, like, desire, but, like, it's, I think, if, if I remember the verse correctly, he talks about desire in the previous verse, he, you know, he's on to actual love of any sort now, because the actual achieving of nirvana requires so much uh, detachment from the normal way of us being in the world. I mean, not necessarily the world itself, but from our, our normal sort of approach to what it means to be in the world, because the illusions are so thick on us uh, that these sort of really radical, like, grief, I mean, absolute non-attachment would mean absolute lack of grief, um, because you'd be able to let the person go. And that might be too much for this woman to hear at that moment, but that seems to me sort of the, the logical end point of the claims being made elsewhere and, you know, in Four Noble Truths and other places. So it, it tracks for me, even if it's unpleasant, because it seems to be just a logical endpoint to all these other teachings. Glenn's head's about to explode. <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> I'm about to dive into a 40-minute talk on the historical development of the sutras. Uh, <laughs> and I don't want to do that. But um, there are a number of things you have to remember about this in that at this point he was treating Kessa as a contemplative, as one of his followers who had put off household life and become a follower. All of the sutras are directed toward either contemplatives or householders. And you can tell in the language the Buddha uses which he is directing his talk to. And he expects different things from those who've taken the contemplative path and from those who are living in the world as householders. And that's why some of the teachings seem to contradict each other because he might tell a contemplative, have no grief, have no love, let go of all of those things. And in the next sutra, tell a courtesan, yeah, go for it. Go ahead with your life. But as you're doing it, release the... Uh, release the clinging to those desires. Two completely different things, but they're addressed to different audiences. The second point is Buddhist scriptures 
are the remembered words some two to three hundred years after they were said of a man. They are not revealed truth. They are what the Buddha said. And and Buddhists have a very difficult time with this, especially uh, Theravadan, Theravadan brothers and sisters. Just because the Buddha said it doesn't mean that it is an eternal truth without contradiction. So we have to remember all of those things as we're reading the sutras. Um, and the, the third point is that um, many of the sutras were modified or changed by the early Sangha to fit what they wanted to teach as they became a, a ruling religious movement. And that was my immediate connection to this one because there's the phrase in it that after death your rebirth is considered, considerate on how you live this life. Well, in many other original sutras, the Buddha refuses to talk about what happens after death. But here you've got him saying, oh, this is what happens, and you're judged based on the way you live. That immediately throws a red flag to me by going, "Eh," but elsewhere he doesn't, he refuses to talk about that. So this says, this is probably a later edition that's trying to control the way that the way that the members of the Sangha deal with things. And, as I said, I could go on for another hour on that. You (laughs) really don't want me to. I just wanted to mention that that was the context of my comment earlier of, like, I think he's actually trying to say this, even though the text says this. Um, That's not just, like, me reading into it. I, I was trying to come from that sort of context of what Glenn just described um, without, you know, I, he's obviously better at articulating that than I am. Oh, no, yeah, you're both saying roughly the same thing. That, yeah. But therein lies the fun of it, right? Like, <laughs> we have so many different examples of things being changed or trying to fit this narrative and that narrative. And then there's the things that we want the Buddha to have said, right? Um, and then that's what I meant by that. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to say this too. I, that's more of a comment on my, what, what, I, what I was hoping for, having read it, and then not getting that. The fun, of this, the fun of these kinds of things are, or when the Buddha says something that we're like, wait, what? Is, that's our struggle, right? That's how we come to terms with what Buddhism means now as opposed to what it meant then. Because Glenn's right. In this, it was probably meant for a more monastic setting. Usually when, when the Buddha is referred to as the Tathagata, like when he says, I, the Tathagata, said this, like, it's usually a tell that he's talking to other monks, right? Or this is for other monks. But that being said, I was going somewhere with it. Um, <laughs> but 
it was written for those people at that particular time. And it probably meant something different. Like maybe in the translation that we've got, somebody got something wrong. Or maybe as it was translated over time, somebody got something wrong or left something out. Or, you know, when people copy books, you know, blah, 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 like, okay, we'll just put an etc. there. Well, what was in that etc.? You know what I mean? And so our job, kind of as modern movies, is to take what was said and be like, huh, I don't really like that. Why don't I like that? Well, here, and then, and then we take what we have, what was written, and we can recontextualize it. And that's why parables are so much fun. That's why the sutras are so much fun. Because you read them and you're like, well, that probably meant something then, but what does it mean to me now? Like, what does this parable mean now? Which is kind of like what we're doing now, 